This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good afternoon. I'm Scott Sagan, the co-director of the Center for International Security and Cooperation. I'm pleased to welcome you here to the Freeman Spodley Institute, uh, the home of, of CSAC and many other research centers. CSAC is Stanford's effort to bring together scientists, engineers, social scientists, and historians to do three things. First, to conduct research on international security problems. Second, to engage with policymakers in Washington, D.C., and elsewhere about those problems. And third, to train the next generation of specialists in international security affairs. As part of this mission, we endeavor to bring together the Stanford and Silicon Valley community for informed discussions about pressing problems. As you see on the advertisement on your seats, the next session of this series will be the Drell Lecture on March 8th in Tresseter, in which Tom Shanker, the Pentagon correspondent for the New York Times, will be joining us for a discussion on the war in three fronts, Iraq, the Pentagon, and Main Street. And now after the uh, one of the most deadly weekends for American troops in Iraq since the insurgency began. It is appropriate and really a privilege to have three of Stanford's most deeply informed and provocative analysts of the conflict in Iraq speak with us today. I will be very brief because these individuals need no thorough introduction. First, we'll be having William J. Perry, Barbarian Professor in the Management Sciences and Engineering Department and the 19th U.S. Secretary of Defense, discuss the Iraq Study Group recommendations and what has happened since that report was given to the President. Second, we will have James Firon, the Theodore and Francis Gabel Professor in Political Science. Uh, professor Firon will be discussing uh, a forthcoming article in Foreign Affairs in the March-April 2007 issue called The Civil War in Iraq. And lastly, we'll be hearing from Larry Diamond, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Co-Director of the International Forum for Democratic Studies of the National Endowment for Democracy. As many of you know, uh, Larry Diamond served as a Senior Advisor to, co to the Coalition Provisional Authority in Iraq during the first three months of 2004 and left and wrote afterwards, squandered victory, American occupation, and bungled effort to bring democracy to Iraq. I'll be moderating Q&A afterwards, so please uh, join me now in welcoming Bill Perry, Jim Firon, and Larry Diamond. Thank, thank you, Scott. It has become clear to the American public that we need a new way forward in Iraq. In December, the Iraq Study Group, known as the ISG, a bipartisan group formed by the Congress, concluded nine months of study and proposed a new way forward. Earlier this month, President Bush announced his new way forward that is significantly different from the ISG recommendations. So in my talk today, I will explain briefly the differences in the two approaches, and why I believe the ISG proposals serve our nation better. It is obvious to everyone that we are in a very deep hole in Iraq. We may never know whether our goal of achieving a democratic, stable government in Iraq was even feasible, since the administration's attempts to do so were so burdened with serious strategic errors. The administration failed to get support from regional powers and from key allies. And as a consequence, American forces comprise about 90% of the coalition, as opposed to 50% in Bosnia and 50% in Desert Storm. The administration did not send in enough troops to main security, maintain security after the Iraqi army was defeated. And thus, after the army was defeated, the United States did not have enough troops to maintain control, giving the insurgency a chance to gain a foothold. The administration disbanded the Iraqi army, police, and civil servants a few weeks after the army was defeated. As a result, 500,000 angry young men were turned loose on towns 
with weapons and with no jobs. And Iraq was left with no security force except for undersized coalition military force. The administration pushed the Iraqi provisional government to establish a constitution and hold elections, but in a faulty process that did not adequately protect minority rights, thus setting the stage for a bloody power struggle between Shias and Sunnis. The cumulative effect of all of these strategic errors is a disastrous security situation in Iraq, which continues to deteriorate. More than 25,000 U.S. military personnel have been killed, maimed, or wounded. This past year, more than 30,000 Iraqis were killed in the sectarian violence sweeping across the country. Well over a million Iraqis have left the country, most of them Iraqi professionals. And the violence is still trending upwards. As grim as this situation is, it could become even worse when American soldiers leave. But that could be true whether we leave a year from now or whether we leave five years from now. In the face of this growing disaster, the U.S. Congress commissioned an independent bipartisan group charged to reach consensus on a way forward in Iraq. The ISG report called for a change in mission, a reinvigoration of diplomacy in the region, a strengthening of the Iraqi government, and the beginning of troop redeployments. The change in mission proposed was key to everything else in the report. We believe that we should try to strengthen the ability of the Iraqi government to hold off a full-scale civil war. We believe that we should continue our efforts to defeat al-Qaeda in Iraq. Although al-Qaeda was not a significant factor in Iraq before the war, it has since established a strong foothold specializing in mass killings. We believe that we should reduce the commitment of our ground forces in Iraq and reestablish their readiness for other missions. The United States has important security responsibilities outside of Iraq, which cannot be met if our ground forces are pinned down in Iraq for the indefinite future. We recommended the following actions to carry out these missions. Shift the mission of U.S. troops from combat patrols to that of training the Iraqi army, including embedding some U.S. soldiers so that they could provide role models and on-the-job training for Iraqi soldiers. Begin pulling out U.S. combat brigades with the goal of having all of them out by the first quarter of 2008, a year from now, except for a strong rapid reaction force needed for force protection and for the fight against al-Qaeda in Iraq. Continue to support Iraqi forces with intelligence, logistics, and air support. Provide both positive and negative incentives for the Iraqi government to accelerate the reconciliation process and oil revenue sharings so that the Sunnis have a stake in a stable Iraq. And finally, mount an intense diplomatic effort to persuade friendly regional powers to assist economically, politically, and with training and to put pressure on unfriendly regional powers to stop arming militias and fomenting violence. If the recommendations of the ISG were to be followed, many of our combat brigades would be out of Iraq this year. As our Army combat brigades and Marine units return to their bases in the United States, the Defense Department will have a huge budget and management problem in restoring them to full combat readiness. The Army, all of whose brigades were at high readiness levels at the beginning of the war, is dangerously close to being broken. Today, less than a third of these forces are at readiness levels needed to meet other military contingencies. And low readiness levels invite such contingencies. Indeed, our security may already have suffered because of the perception of Iran and North Korea that our forces are tied down in Iraq. The Defense Department also needs to reconsider the role of the National Guard since the compact with these citizen soldiers has been shattered by the extended deployments that have caused many of them to lose their jobs or even their families. Earlier this month, the President proposed what he called a new way forward in Iraq. His strategy calls for adding more than 20,000 combat forces, the bulk of them to be employed in securing 
Baghdad. When the ISG was in Baghdad in September, we discussed the Baghdad security problem with General Casey and General Corelli and asked if they could increase the likelihood of success if they had another three to five American brigades, which is the size that the President is talking about. Both generals said no. They argued that the problem of conducting combat patrols in neighborhoods of Baghdad had to be carried out by Iraqi forces. They said that they believed that bringing in more American troops could delay the Iraqis assuming responsibility for their own security. And they said that any solution to the security problem required the Iraqi government to start making real progress in the programs of political reconciliation that they had already committed to do. This assessment was consistent with what we had heard from General Abizaid in an earlier briefing in the United States. I believe that we should stay with the recommendations of our most recent commanders in Iraq and not send in more American combat forces. The best chance of bringing down the violence in Iraq lies with the Iraqi army, and we can improve their chance of success by using U.S. ground forces to provide the on-the-job training that would result from embedding some American troops in Iraqi combat units, as proposed by the ISG. Moreover, none of this military action will be effective unless the Iraqi government moves promptly to carry out the programs of reconciliation they have already committed to do. This involves the sharing of power and the sharing of oil revenues with Sunnis. The Iraqi government has delayed carrying out these programs for almost a year now. The ISG proposal puts maximum pressure for timely action on the part of the Iraqi government, whereas sending in the additional American troops provides a rationale for further delays that effectively avoid making the fundamental changes that are necessary. The President's announced strategy also entails diplomatic actions that are far less comprehensive than envisaged by the ISG, and none at all with Syria, which plays a pivotal role in the region and with whom we could have considerable leverage. In sum, I believe that the President's diplomatic strategy is too timid and his military strategy is too little and too late to affect the lasting and profound changes needed. His strategy is not likely to succeed because it is tactical, not strategic, because it does not entail real conditionality for the Iraqi government, and because it will only deepen the divide in our country. The ISG proposal has a better chance because it recognizes the key actions needed in Iraq to affect lasting results must be taken by the Iraqi government and the Iraqi army, and because it provides both the support and the incentives for those actions. Most importantly, the recommendations of the bipartisan ISG provide an opportunity for the nation to come together again. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Now we'll hear from Jim Furon. Thanks very much, Scott. Um, in, in, the, in my 10 minutes, I'd like to try to make two points. Uh, the first is that the, the so-called surge option is not a well-considered policy, and I think it does not represent a good way forward for the U.S. and Iraq. The deepest problem with the surge is not the great uncertainty about whether increasing U.S. troops will actually succeed in reducing violence in Baghdad over the course of the coming year, although it's certainly true that that's far from a sure thing. The deeper problem is that even if adding some U.S. brigades were to have that effect, uh, doing so will hardly bring us closer to achieving the President's declared goal of an Iraq that can govern itself, sustain itself, and defend itself in the absence of U.S. troops. Even if more U.S. troops can help calm things down some, there's no good reason to expect that subsequent reductions in U.S. forces would not revive the violent power struggle that's now taking place. While U.S. troops are present in force and propping up the Shiite-dominated government, Sunni insurgent groups have little reason to change their belief that they could retake control of the country if the U.S. were gone. The Bush administration's political objective has been to help put in place a power-sharing agreement uh, among Sunnis, Shias, Kurds, and Kurds in Iraq, 
but we're trying to do this now in the midst of an escalating civil war. Even if more U.S. troops could temporarily calm things down, the trust and political coherence on each side that would necessary to make a power-sharing agreement stick uh, in our absence are seriously lacking. Historically, uh, civil wars have usually been ended by decisive military victories for one side or the other. Stable power-sharing agreements have been far less common. When power-sharing agreements have occurred, they've usually required years of fighting to make it clear to each side that neither can get everything at once by force. They've also required that the combatants not be highly factionalized. Neither of these conditions holds uh, yet for Iraq. In the first place, many Sunni insurgent groups seem to believe they can uh, take back control of the country or the government when the U.S. is gone. And many armed Shia groups think they can prevent this and that they further must teach the Sunnis a lesson about their minority status. Second, both sides are highly factionalized, uh, which makes and will make putting together a credible, stable peace deal extremely difficult. The implication of this is, is genuinely tragic. It suggests that more fighting and bargaining among Iraqis themselves is probably the only way to reach a point where power sharing could become a feasible solution to the problem of governing Iraq. More fighting holds the prospect of clarifying the balance of forces and creating pressures for internal consolidation on one or both sides, thereby providing stronger grounds for either a victory by one side or a stable negotiated settlement. The second main point I want to make concerns the implications of, of what is now really a, 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 a pretty significantly large civil war in Iraq for U.S. policy looking forward. As the ethnic cleansing of Baghdad proceeds, the weak Shiite-dominated government of Prime Minister um, al-Maliki is inevitably becoming an open partisan in a nasty civil war between Sunni and Shiite Arabs. As a result, President Bush's commitment to making a success of the current government will increasingly amount to siding with the Shiites a position that I think is morally dubious and probably not in the interest of either the United States or long-run regional peace and stability. A decisive military victory by a Shiite-dominated government is probably not possible anytime soon, given the favorable conditions for insurgency fought from the Sunni-dominated provinces. Furthermore, a U.S. policy that pushes for a decisive military victory by Shiite forces basically encourages Sunni nationalists to turn to al-Qaeda in Iraq for support against Shiite militias and the Iraqi army. It also aligns Washington with Iran against the Sunni-dominated states to the West, who may ultimately become involved in a proxy war against a government that we and Iran are supporting. So what are our alternatives at this point? Given the fact of a civil war in progress in the non-Kurdish areas, I think that logically there are three main possibilities for U.S. policy in the medium run. First, we could side with the Shiites and push for a decisive military victory, which is essentially, in de facto, I think, the course we're on. Second, and very hypothetically, we could switch, siding with some Sunni group and push for a decisive military victory by some uh, uh, Sunni force. Third, we could adopt some form of balancing policy, the point of which would be to provide financial, material, and, and possibly limited military support to the side that's most in danger of being crushed by the other. The point of this would be to encourage the perception that no one group or faction can win without sharing power and resources in some kind of stable, in some kind of negotiated settlement. It seems to me that of these options, some kind of balancing policy will, will ultimately prove to be the best approach. Pushing for a decisive victory for a Shiite military group makes us passively complicit in a massive campaign of ethnic cleansing that's going on now and, and probably will continue in Baghdad. Moreover, even in the unlikely event that the Shiite-dominated army could suppress insurgency from the western provinces, would we really want to help impose a brutal, ethnically exclusivist Shiite-dominated government in Iraq? This would further the perception of Iran as the ascendant regional power and would favor Sunnis seeking al-Qaeda as an ally against us and the Iranians. Pushing for a decisive military victory by a Sunni armed group seems even more clearly a bad approach. It's unlikely to succeed, given opposition, opposition and the potential for intervention from Iran, which will certainly make it its you know, fundamental objective to prevent a return of a Sunni military dictatorship. And even if it could succeed, what would be the point of restoring an oppressive Sunni military dictatorship, since that's a big reason for the mess we're in now? So that basically leaves us with some sort of balancing policy where we stand back from the conflict and adopt a more even-handed, largely diplomatic approach. In the short run, this would give us more leverage with almost all the main parties, uh, in, in both in Iraq and in the region, a commodity that's seriously lacking for the U.S. government at present. 
the Bush administration's uh, basically absolute commitment to the success of the Maliki government or its successor essentially allows Maliki and his coalition the ability to pursue or at least acquiesce in a dirty war against actual and imagined Sunni antagonists while publicly supporting national reconciliation. Moving away from absolute commitment, for example, by beginning to shift U.S. combat troops out of the central theaters, could give Shiite leaders stronger incentives to try to gain back U.S. military support by making more genuine efforts to incorporate Sunnis into the government or by reining in Shiite militias in a serious fashion. As U.S. troops departed, Sunni insurgent groups would begin to see the U.S. less as a committed ally of, of uh, what they call the Persians and more as a potential source of financial or even military backing. Washington would also have more leverage with Iran and Syria because the U.S. military would not be completely bogged down in Baghdad and Anbar province, and because both those countries have a direct interest in avoiding increased chaos in Iraq. In the long run, shifting to a balancing role would be more conducive to ultimately gaining a stable resolution in which Sunni, Shiite, and Kurdish interests are represented in a decent Iraqi government. Despite the, the horrible violence that's currently tearing Iraq apart, apart in the long run, I think there's actually hope for return to a, a viable Iraqi state based on a political bargain among the main groups. The basis for an Iraqi state is the common interest of all parties, especially the elites, in the efficient exploitation of oil resources. Continued civil war could persuade Shiite leaders that they can't fully enjoy oil profits and political control without adequately buying off uh, Sunni groups. <coughs> And civil war could persuade the Sunnis that a return to Sunni dominance and Shiite quiescence is impossible. Kurdish leaders have an interest in the autonomy they've already secured, but with access to functioning oil pipelines leading south. Continued civil war could also lead to partition of the country by mutual agreement someday, but I think this is a decision for Iraqis to make rather than outsiders. The Iraq study group report pointed out major problems with the U.S. pushing for partition of the country. I agree with their analysis on that and would add some additional negative features as well if, if people want to bring it up in questions, the question of partition. To sum up, even if the coming surge in U.S. combat troops, so-called surge, it's more likely a, a fairly long-term escalation, manages to lower the rate of killing in Baghdad, very little in relevant historical experience or the facts of the case suggests that U.S. troops would not be stuck in Iraq for decades, keeping sectarian and factional power struggles at bay while fending off jihadist and nationalist attacks. The more likely scenario is that the Bush administration's commitment to the success of the Maliki government will align the United States with one side in a vicious civil war for no compelling reason or end. Standing back to adopt a more even-handed policy in the civil war already in progress is a more sensible and defensible course. To pursue it, the first step is that the Bush administration or its successor will have to give up on the idea that a few more U.S. brigades or a change in U.S. tactics will make for an Iraq that can, as President Bush said, govern itself, sustain itself, and defend itself once U.S. troops are gone. Thank you. Thank you. And last, we have Larry Diamond. Well, I'd like to begin by thanking Secretary Perry, who I think is one of the truly great American public servants of my lifetime, for organizing this session, for asking me to speak, and most of all for what I think has been an extraordinary and very influential service on the Iraq Study Group and in our national debate on Iraq. I wish people like him had been consulted and listened to before we entered upon this military intervention in Iraq. Their counsel would have shown the folly of this war and would have spared us the staggering losses we have already suffered in one of the biggest foreign policy blunders in American history. It is clear that we have to find a way out of Iraq. The current level of American commitment, not to mention the expansion that President Bush is embarked upon, is not sustainable for very much longer. But it is also clear to most people with knowledge and experience in the region, including most policy experts who opposed invading Iraq in the first place, that any exit strategy must find a way to minimize the risk of an even worse disaster. It is, in my opinion, a pity that the President did not take more seriously the analysis and recommendations of the Iraq study group, 
because they offer a comprehensive strategy, as Secretary Perry analyzed, that is phased, measured, and politically focused. I do have, as I've conveyed to him, some reservations about the proposal to withdraw all combat troops, save for a rapid reaction for force by the first quarter of next year. But I have even deeper reservations about the President's current course, which repeats the same failed strategy of pouring in more and more support for the Iraqi government without the latter first demonstrating the responsibility and accommodation that would make our own support effective. These and other American mistakes are, frankly, all too painfully reminiscent of Vietnam. No doubt we need a new military approach to stabilize Iraq, beginning in particular with Baghdad. But the debate over the surge is missing, I think, often uh, these fundamental issues. One, the roots of the conflict are political. This runs through what you've heard so far. And the most crucial conditions for stabilizing Iraq are political ones. Two, we cannot want a decent and peaceful Iraq more than the Iraqi leaders themselves do unless they step forward to make the difficult compromises they have so far been rejecting or deferring and to assume much more vigorous military and political responsibility for stabilizing their own country, our mission there will fail. Three, if it becomes clear that we are headed towards certain failure, then what is the point of sacrificing more American lives and treasure? How do you ask someone even someone from the American underclass who had few good options in life beyond enlisting to be the last man or woman to die for a mistake. Four, victory in anything like the terms President Bush has defined it is no longer possible in Iraq, but I believe it may, I repeat, may still be possible to avoid the most catastrophic dimensions of failure. In all-out civil war, claiming lives on a scale several times the current annual rate of 35,000 Iraqi deaths, and the establishment in Iraq of an operating base for al-Qaeda and other Sunni jihadist groups to wage a war of terror against the West. Five, the above, the consequences of the two d disastrous developments I just mentioned would be truly awful for our national security, so much so that I believe we still must try to prevent them. Even though the odds of achieving these far more limited objectives are, I think at this point, uncertain. An all-out civil war in Iraq would become, I think, a regional war, further polarizing relations between Sunnis and Shia throughout the Middle East and endangering moderate regimes. A haven for jihadists in Al-Anbar province would be used to recruit, train, and deploy terrorists to strike at Europe and the United States and to destabilize neighboring moderate regimes. Just because George Bush warns that this could be an outcome of our failure in Iraq doesn't make it not so. <laughs> the above five realities lead me to the following policy recommendations. One. Our continued engagement in Iraq and our future military and economic assistance to its government have to be, to echo a theme you have heard in the previous two statements, conditioned on the Iraqi leaders taking specific and difficult steps toward political reconciliation and strategic stabilization. Politically, these steps must include, my second point, first, a consensus agreement governing ownership and management of the country's oil resources and a guaranteed formula for distribution of oil revenue among the provinces. This should have been written into the Constitution in 2005. We're in the state we're in now in part because the President of the United States, against the advice of many of his advisors and against the pleas of many Iraqis involved in the Constitution drafting process in 2005 insisted that this Constitution be done by August 15th when the process could have been extended another six months. A second requirement politically is amendment of the Constitution to fix many of the other problems resulting from the disaster of this document being adopted without Sunni adequate participation in the October 2005 referendum. Just to give you one other example 
of something that cannot be sustained uh, is the provision in that constitution that allows for a Shiite superregion spanning all nine southern provinces, which the Shiite uh, clerical and political leader Abdulaziz al-Hakim has promised uh, to create, which would sit atop 70% uh, of the country's proven oil and gas resources, and which is totally unacceptable to the Sunni minority. A third uh, political need here is a very significant rollback of the scope of debathification, one of the original mistakes that Bill Perry talked about. Third, on the security side, the Iraqis must do the following. First, assume greater responsibility for clearing and holding territory against insurgent and militia forces uh, and shifting to our being a support training element in the way that uh, Bill Perry described. Second, build an integrated army and command structure that transcends ethnic and sectarian loyalties and shows some measure of loyalty to an Iraqi national government. Third, pur purge the police and the interior ministry of the Shiite militias and death squads who infiltrated it and pretty much conquered it in 2005-2006. Fourth, move against the most identifiable and murderous Shia death squads and their leaders, including many of the forces of Muqtada al-Sadr. You have heard uh, that the Maliki government has started doing this. I am deeply skeptical about whether they're really serious or whether this is just a show temporarily to please the Americans, a brief campaign to round up the usual suspects. The most important thing the United States can do in Iraq now is to use our still considerable military, economic, and diplomatic leverage to press for the achievement of political compromise and the assertion of military and political responsibility by the Iraqi state. If these things don't happen, no amount of American force and finance can make up for the deficits, and we would better, we'd be better off acknowledging that it's hopeless and expediting our departure. But even if the Iraqis do begin to take the hard steps, there are other political steps we must take to help stabilize Iraq. First, renounce any intention of seeking permanent military bases in Iraq. This was an important recommendation of the Iraq study group that the president has completely, willfully ignored. Until we do this, we cannot turn the corner on the Sunni-based insurgency or put to rest the broader suspicion among Iraqis of a long-term American project to dominate their country and control their oil. Second, negotiate directly with secular elements of the Sunni-based insurgency. For three years now, these elements uh, have been coming to uh, the United States through international intermediaries seeking to negotiate. Uh, the Bush administration has never responded effectively to these feelers. Although the hour is late, I think dialogue with these groups that are killing Americans and destabilizing uh, the uh, aspiring political order in Iraq, not the jihadists, but other secular and more limited Islamist elements, uh, dialogue with them may still be possible. Uh, and may help to turn a corner. There's no strategic goal for the United States and Iraq that is more important than forging a deal with these elements of the Sunni insurgency to crush and expel al-Qaeda from Iraq. Third, internationalize the search for political consensus in Iraq. We cannot bear the political load on our own. We need the help of the United Nations, the European Union, uh, both of whom carry far less political baggage in Iraq than we do, and the neighboring Arab states, including, as Secretary Perry uh, commented upon, uh, Syria, uh, and including if there is something to uh, be uh, forged in terms of common interest or at least explored, Iran, as Secretary Baker uh, uh, articulated in introducing the report and its findings, we, learn, we lose nothing by at least talking to these groups. Finally, we need to respond to the mounting humanitarian crisis spawned by this war. You heard the estimates of refugees it could be up to in terms of internally and externally di displaced by now, 10% of Iraq's 25 million people. Nearly a million of them, by UN estimates, have moved to Jordan alone. 
Jordan, most of all, urgently needs assistance to help it manage and absorb this refugee burden. Uh, if the current Bush plan does not work, I believe we may also have no choice uh, but to um, look at um, resettling people in much larger numbers uh, in ways that might uh, follow, in some respects, the model of Bosnia-Herzegovina in a last-ditch effort to stave off total civil war in extremely unappealing uh, uh, last-range uh, option, in my view. In short, it may still be possible to achieve very limited stabilization goals in Iraq, and we must hope that it is, or the resulting chaos, bloodshed, and radicalization in Iraq and in the region will dwarf what we have seen to date. But even these limited goals require a much more far-reaching transformation of the American approach in Iraq. Without that, we are going to fail in Iraq or else remain there indefinitely with well over 100,000 American troops bleeding and frustrated just to hold off complete disaster. Thank you. We have 25 minutes. I'd like to keep a strict 1 p.m. Uh, sharp cutoff time. There are microphones uh, scattered about. If you could raise your hand, I'll call on an individual, and uh, you could have the microphone and ask a quick question. The gentleman in the back with the white shirt and vest, please. This is a question. Ooh, this is a question for Mr. Perry. Mr. Perry, it appears that your analysis leads to a catastrophe. Do you think, what's your opinion of the Congress refusing to vote money for the current Bush initiative? Uh, I am conflicted about the, the proposal to uh, limit funding. The the problem is I do not know how to limit funding for the new troops over there and still not limit funding for the troops who are already there. I think it's a desperate measure, and I'm sorry that we have come to that measure. And I would hope that we can find some way of, of uh, stopping this new troop deployment without cutting off the funding. It's a very, very difficult to execute that in practice. You could wait for a microphone so that everyone can hear the question, and please identify yourself before asking your question. I'm Vicki Brooks. Uh, the reality is that all everything that you have said falls on deaf ears. So the other reality is that we're looking at two more years of Bush policy, which means, based on the past, a thousand, two thousand more American dead and thousand more Iraqi dead, and so based on those realities. Why not look at stopping the American occupation now? I know you've said all these terrible things will happen, but the reality is we have two more years of what's going to happen. He's not going to listen to you. He didn't. He won't. He's going to do what he wants to do. And we've got this situation that has to be stopped. Well, let me say that if he's not going to uh, listen to us in this context, uh, then he's not going to listen to anything except uh, mandatory congressional uh, action to cut off funding. And I, I just don't favor that for some of the reasons that Secretary Perry has articulated. Um, I th you know, the president continues to make adjustments. They're always too little too late. Um, I think that uh, if and when this fails, and if he doesn't do the other things that the Iraq study group recommended it, and that Jim Fearon talked about, it will fail, then he's going to be out of options. And who knows what might happen at this point. I will say just one last thing. There is one thing the Congress can do, I think quite explicitly, and that is prevent him from widening this war in the way Nixon widened the Vietnam War by invading Cambodia in the spring of 1970. And I think the Congress should make it very clear by congressional action that the War Powers Act applies to the use of any military force against Iranian soil. 
uh, and that the president cannot launch uh, air or naval or other strikes on the territory of Iran uh, without congressional uh, authorization. Uh, and it should, be, it should be made clear, and I think implicitly it would be by such a resolution, that if he does so, which I think he is preparing to do, uh, that this would be an impeachable offense. Please. I must say that in spite of my answer about the funding, I am not as pessimistic about the power of Congress as suggested by your question, Vicky. I do think that uh, Congress potentially has enough power to have a profound influence on this question today. Uh, the resolution that we're proposing now is not a binding resolution, of course, but it could have very substantial effect, particularly, this is a very important point, particularly if a significant number of Republicans sign the resolution as well. Whether or not this resolution is really effective, I think depends completely on that. If it's a, if it's a completely partisan effort, it will not have much effect. But if you can get as many as 25, 30 percent of the Republicans to sign it, then I think it starts to become very powerful. In addition to that, there's a point that uh, Larry made about a specific um, statement refusing authorization for funding for widening the war. I think that's a very important point. I would, I would broadly support that. Gentleman in the back, please. Hi, Martin Carnoy from the School of Education at Stanford. There are lots of questions I'd like to ask this illustrious panel, but I want to ask a specific question about the Ba'ath Party. Uh, if everything was such a failure, I suspect that debathification was also a failure. And the question is, what? That's that's probably the largest organized political unit in Iraq. Still, uh, I doubt that it's been destroyed. So, none of you mentioned this group uh, as a potential player in any future what goes on. All you said is that there's going to be a disaster if we leave. But aren't there political structures in place that might, I wouldn't say prevent, but at least attenuate such a, such a disaster? What evidence do you have that, in fact, if we would deploy American troops uh, away from combat, that, in fact, um, those political structures would not move into place. Uh, Jim, you talked about factionalization among the uh, Sunnis. Perhaps well, you could address I, that. Um, I do think that it will be there, or there will be disastrous conditions in Iraq if we leave, but I don't think there'll be. Um, I'm, I'm not. Who knows exactly? But uh, um, I'm not of the view, or, or I guess I'm a little skeptical of the view, which uh, which. Um, Larry was expressing, which which many people think is plausible and which could be right, that that there will be we, the talk about well, then there'll be an all-out civil war and some massive escalation. I'm actually not convinced. I mean, it could happen, but I have a little hard time seeing that as the most likely thing, rather than just actual kind of more of what we are seeing now, maybe at a gradually higher level. If in in that event, I think that you're right that the Ba'ath Party may become a very uh, uh, an, an important player. It depends a lot on uh, well, okay. So so another assumption people often make is that the Sunnis are really you know the the, the view that they could take back power and uh, uh, is absurd. And there's so many more uh, Shia uh, and they're you know so uh, you know I don't know. There's the Sunnis really have no hope, and it's ridiculous. Uh, for them to keep fighting on that basis, I think that's that's wrong, and that there's so much division and factionalism among the on the Shia side uh, that Sunnis can, or many Sunni armed groups can reasonably think that if the U.S. weren't there, uh, division among the Shia might provide an opening for a return um, uh, to Sunni power, and the Ba'ath Party might be the vehicle for that. No, it was uh, it was uh, mixed. Although I think at the highest levels, it was very much uh, overwhelmingly. Yeah. Uh, the gentleman with the pink shirt in the middle there. Yes. My name is Sadak Al Sadir. I have a question for uh, Mr. Diamond. Uh, you uh, generously offer negotiations to the insurgents um, who may be responsible for killing and wounding U.S. troops, certainly may be responsible for 
car bombings and other atrocities directed at um, Kurdish and Shia civilians, yet you don't seem willing to extend that same courtesy to the uh, followers of Muqtada al-Sadr, which the, even the Iraq study group advocated. And I wonder, given the fact that this young man is certainly the single most popular political figure in the country, has about seven million loyal followers, and has a movement that goes beyond him as an individual, why you expect a military operation directed at him to, first of all, how would you conduct that? Why would you expect it to be successful? And why would you expect it not to result in his movement becoming even more popular as happened in the first two confrontations uh, including when uh, you decided to close his newspaper in 2004 That's and really give his uh, movement their start. You can thank Paul Bremer for the newspaper. Um, I, uh, a couple of things. First of all, this is not a gift to the insurgents to talk to them. This is not a courtesy. You don't talk to your friends when you're in the middle of a war. If you, you end a war by either one side or the other winning or by some compromise agreement. And if you're going to get a compromise agreement, you've got to talk to the people who are killing you. It just seems patently obvious. In terms of Sadr and his movement, he's already in the government. He's in the political process. Uh, and the key is that you want to uh, uh, change his calculations so that the worst forms of death squad activity are not part of the way uh, he engages the process. So he engages it in a way uh, that involves uh, a more, you know, limited use of coercion, uh, speaking realistically, uh, and, um, uh, you know, more conventional politics. But you're not going to stabilize Iraq unless the worst forms of Shiite death squad activity abate in the same way that um, we abate the worst forms of Sunni insurgent violence and terrorism. You have to work on both problems simultaneously. And the fact that Sadr is still in the game uh, as the, the government and the Americans move on some of the most uh, egregious death squad leaders, I think, shows that a calibrated approach can work, or might work. Gentlemen here on the, the side. Uh, Randy Shandabill from KTVU. Question for Mr. Diamond and, and or Mr. Perry. Uh, much is being made about the possible impact a congressional vote of no confidence would have uh, on American troops and on insurgents and Shia militia. I'm just wondering, uh, insurgents and Shia militia, what message would a vote of no confidence send to them? Would it complicate things uh, more than are already complicated? <laughs> Uh, I have heard many comments about that proposal and other proposals <clears throat> could embolden the insurgents. My opinion is they do not need to be emboldened. They are as bold as they can. Nothing we are say or do is going to make them more or less bold. Larry, do you want to add to that? I can't top that, Bill. <laughs> Come in here in the front. It seems as though the Iraqi forces that may be moving into Baghdad are largely, uh, the additional units are Kurdish um, soldiers being brought down from the, the Kurdish areas. And I wonder if you could comment on the implications of injecting a, a Kurdish presence in policing up Baghdad. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure about the the overall competition, although you're right, I mean, I, we have seen pictures of large numbers of uh, Peshmerga moving down to Baghdad. Um, I don't know. I guess my, my the, the thing, the question I'm most interested in is whether they will actually engage in serious, uh, serious fighting um, rather than ma mainly force, protect, force protection for themselves. That'll be very interesting, and I don't have a strong view on it. I don't know. Others? The, having a... Uh, Kurdish militia come into Baghdad, I think, is a potentially um, could ignite more violence and it could stem. The Iraqi National Army, as a contrast with the Iraqi police, the Iraqi National Army is a national army. It has elements from the Kurds and the Shia and the Sunnis all in it. It is our best chance, I think, of providing a stabilization, not bringing in Shia militia or Kurdish militia or Sunni militias. 
We have a question in the very back row here. Yes, the person raising their hand there. Thank you. Hello? Yeah, hi. Um, my name is Daniel. I'm a, a PhD student in physics. Um, anyway, so um, it seems like the one thing that everyone can agree on is that uh, the only real solution would have been to not do it in the first place. So I guess what I would like to hear from you guys, is there any way that we could restructure the way that foreign policy decisions are made in this country such that that perspective would actually be listened to before it happened? I mean, it's great that the Congress doesn't like it now, but what about beforehand? The Congress had an opportunity to prevent this from happening, and they didn't do it. Now, they were misled, uh, to be sure. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, they were intimidated in the wake of, I think, in the wake of September 11th. Uh, they didn't ask the hard questions. Uh, they were scared politically of looking weak on terrorism. Uh, and this is the result. I don't know what more you can do constitutionally or procedurally uh, than, uh, you know, stand up as a public uh, and as a set of institutions and exercise your responsibilities. And I want to repeat what I said. We have a chance to get it right now in terms of not bombing Iran. So at least, you know, let's not repeat the mistake all over again. Question in the back, standing up with the plaid shirt, yes. Wait for the mic. Wait, if you could wait for the microphone and introduce yourself, please. Uh, Fritjof Tigerson, uh, class, Stanford class of 51. Uh, marvelous presentation. Marvelous presentation. I hope I can remember most of it. My question is, can any of you think of something more or less bumper sticker style uh, that we can use in terms of reaching the masses of the American people who want this war over but uh, don't have a kind of easy way of uh, expressing themselves? Do you each have a bumper sticker to design? What, what is your one's... Uh, one phrase slogan. Uh, uh, withdraw and balance. I like that. <laughs> and mine is conditionality. Compel the Iraqis to assume responsibility and make clear that we are going to uh, expedite our withdrawal if they don't. They all would have also said, read my book or read my article, if they had a longer bumper sticker on top of it. Please, individual in the back there. I have an idea for a bumper sticker. Uh, it's called, next time, let's fight them here. Over here. Needs no reply. Um, John Igo, uh, mechanical engineering grad student. This question is for Mr. Diamond, sir. I was wondering if you could give us some examples of positive and negative reinforcement that we could use on the Iraqi government to achieve the goals that you've been talking about today. Uh, yes, I think that uh, on the positive side, it would involve um, um, the uh, provision of the economic assistance, the $1 billion, for example, that Bush is just going to, it appears, dump in their lap uh, without anything in return. Um, I also think that um, it's got to be finely calibrated. It's not just a matter of our overall presence. It's a matter of balancing, uh, as Jim said, in a very sensitive way, depending on the positions that different actors take. In terms of subtle things we can do, uh, to signal uh, uh, support or displeasure. Uh, and in terms of where we put our troops uh, and whom we protect. Uh, you know, these people are physically insecure uh, in places. And uh, we can uh, make that better or worse. Uh, but I think the overall thing is, uh, and this is why, uh, in, in general, I, I really do with, agree with uh, both of my colleagues on this panel. The Iraqi... Uh, uh, antagonists here feel that we're there holding up a minimum floor of security. Uh, and with that minimum floor, they can engage in their killing, uh, their corruption, uh, all of their self-seeking because they know things aren't going to implode. We're maintaining a minimum level of security. I think we have to make it clear that we're not going to play that game any longer. And if they don't change their behavior, 
we're prepared to bite the bullet and get out much more quickly. Question right here in the middle, yes. Wait for the microphone and introduce yourself, please. In the past six years, Bush has not been able to negotiate with a democratic minority. What makes you think that he can negotiate with anybody? Who are the Republicans that will have to come calling on him, as Goldwater did on Nixon, to make him realize that he has to change? Uh, my only comment on that is that I think the scenario described is the right scenario. If a sufficient number of Republicans become convinced that this is disastrous, not only for the country, but for their political prospects, they will go to Bush. And that's the kind of pressure which will have the most effect, I think. On yesterday's meet the press, John McCain did not do that. He's not, John McCain's not going to be one of those. <laughs> <laughs> right here in the middle, please. Hi, I'm Jennifer Kuyper. I just had a quick question about the oil. Does anyone know what's going on in terms of current control over oil resources and plans for privatization? I don't know about privatization. Uh, we'll see what the bill uh, produces. But the problem is that there's no clear reality at all. You've got the Kurdish government negotiating with international oil companies on uh, new deals for uh, production uh, of new fields. Uh, you've got the, the, the Shiites in the, in the center in the south doing this. And uh, no one, the oil companies are tearing their hair out because they don't know who's really in control and what deal, if it's signed, will have any uh, enduring legal uh, uh, validity. So um, it's a mess right now. It's Ill, it is de deliberately ambiguous and ill-defined. And we'll see there have been reports that there is a bill pending that's going to clarify this. If they pull this off in terms of truly clarifying who has the authority here, and, it, and if there was a clear and credible commitment to the uh, uh, proportional distribution of the oil revenue, among the different provinces in Iraq, roughly in proportion to their population. And if it was broadly consensually embraced by the different groups, it would definitely be one of the most important positive developments in Iraq since Saddam fell. I have the last question from the gentleman on the side here. My name is Ken Broom. I'm with the World Affairs Council of the Peninsula section. I'd like to ask Secretary Perry if at any time during the Iraq study group discussions, the possibility was considered of referring the matter back to the United Nations Security Council on the basis that we had achieved our objectives of assuring self-defense. And this situation that we face now was totally unforeseen. Mm. Uh, we certainly discussed uh, what the United Nations could do in this problem. We met with and spoke with the United Nations uh, officials, both in New York and in Baghdad. Uh, they were not volunteering <laughs> to take this over, and they have no security force they could put in. So it was hard for me to see, at least, uh, given their own view of it, how we could expect anything more positive to come out than that. I think we simply have to get the other regional powers involved. If we got those regional powers involved, the UN, I think, could step forward to play a much more significant role. Before we thank our, before we thank our speakers, I just want to thank all of you for coming after a weekend of frankly depressing news. It is reassuring to see how many people here in this community, among students and among citizens in the local community, care enough to come out on a Monday afternoon to hear three distinguished and superb speakers. Let me remind you of our March 8th event at 4 p.m. Tom Schenker, the Pentagon correspondent for the New York Times, will be speaking on three wars of Iraq. In Iraq, in, uh, the, inside the Pentagon, and on Main Street USA. I hope all of you will come, but let us end by thanking Bill Perry, Jim Fearon. Thank you for organizing this. You can see that people are very grateful.
The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.